there, welcome to Bible Discoveries, the weekend show where we aim to discuss big questions that come up as we read through the Bible. And we also aim to discuss and answer your questions as well. So my name is Corey, if this is your first time here, and I'm here with my husband. Hey, how you doing? Good, Good. what's Hi. your name? Introduce yourself <laughs> to the people. Well, everyone knows who I am now by this point. So I'm Matt Locke, <laughs> but today what's more important is what we're reading. Yes. And that's Deuteronomy 15 to Joshua 8, and we're getting into a bunch of stuff there. It's a lot of nitty gritty stuff, I think, that right. is really important to muzzle over, I guess. Yeah, so yeah. that was our assigned reading this week. So some of the questions that we're gonna be talking about today, our big question is, why did God command genocide if he is indeed all merciful? So we're talking the conquest right into that, uh, Deuteronomy right into Joshua. We're also going to be taking a look at some of your questions, like how could Moses write about his own death at the end of Deuteronomy? We're going to be taking a look at the ever controversial sons of Israel or sons of God passage in Deuteronomy 32. Uh, and we're going to be talking about slavery as well. Lots of good stuff up on the docket today. So Matlock, uh, we're going to skip over the big question for now because we're going to have a discussion about that at the end. But let's jump right into a question, a viewer question from sure. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8. And this question is from Joseph. Joseph says... Deuteronomy 32 verse 8 appears to say something different depending on whether we look at the MT, so the Masoretic Text, the LXX, so the Septuagint, or the DSS, so the Dead Sea Scrolls. Variations I have heard include sons of God, sons of Israel, and angels of God. I know many make a tie to the Genesis 6 entities, which I tend to believe, but not seeing absolute clarity. So although not a specific question, insight or clarification, etc., would be appreciated. Right. So what do you think? Okay, so a couple things off the cuff, which we talked about this beforehand, is that when he's mentioning the Masoretic and the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls, he lists here, sons of God, sons of Israel, and angels of God. Mm -hmm. Now right off the cuff, the translation, sons of Israel, is not actually in any of those. Right, so that's an English interpretation of the words. So that's the right. English uh, translators are going, okay, what does the scripture mean by this? How can we convey the idea? And they've chosen in some translations, sons of Israel. Right, and I'm pretty sure that's the ESV that translates that. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty mm -hmm. sure that it does. Whereas other translations you'll read, um, we'll just say sons of God or angels of God. Right, because right. the Masoretic text and the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Masoretic text is Hebrew and the Dead Sea Scrolls is also Hebrew, but it just is a different, um, it's just a different thing, right? Uh, those say sons of God in Deuteronomy 32 verse 8, and it's the Septuagint, the LXX, that says, when God separated the sons of man, he determined the boundaries of the nations according to the angels. So a little context for anyone who's not 100% sure what we're talking about. Deuteronomy 32 is the Song of Moses, and Moses is going through some of the history of Israel, and, and he's praising God. It's a really interesting song, but when he gets to verse 8, it says this. Uh, so I am using the, the NIV. NIV right now. Uh, and it says, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. So NIV uses sons of Israel. Yes. Rather than the direct, um, the literal translation, sons of God, uh, or right. according to the angels. So the reason why this question is so popular now is because Michael Heiser, I don't know if anyone knows him, he's pretty popular right. now, has wrote a book called The Unseen Realm. Yeah. And essentially talks about this. He calls this the Deuteronomy 32 worldview, mm -hmm. in which he says, look, no, don't, it's, it, the Masoretic says sons of God, 
keep it exactly the same. Because it's not referring to people, as you'll read, and he connects some other verses there. He goes, it's referring to angels. So his whole spiel is, I'm going to read you some connected verses, uh, is that angels were ruling spiritually, had spiritual authority over the 70 nations that came out of the table of nations in Genesis 11. And those, those angels rebelled against God. And we're corrupt, right? And he ties this back to Psalm 82, verses 1 to 9, which you can read on your own. And the long story short is, okay, so in the table of nations, these angels had authority. They rebel against God, and they start desiring to be worshipped, and the people start worshipping them. They become lowercase g gods, right? And they should not be. And so what God does is God calls Abram out of there. Notice how Israel is not listed in the table of nations. And he calls them out of there to start a nation of his own. So I'm going to read you some verses to kind of understand that in principle. So uh, Deuteronomy 32 verse 17 says, this is not the ESV, this is the NASB. They sacrifice to demons who are not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately whom your fathers did not know. So they came lately because they're in the table of nations. Um, and they came, they became spiritual authorities during the table of nations process when the 70 nations were presented. Anyways, then it goes on to talk about how God wants, God calls Abraham out, right, to start his own nation. And here's what this says. It's in Deuteronomy 4, verses 19 to 20. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. So in other words, God has called the people of Israel through Abraham to be his own people. They are not listed in the table of nations. They are independents. So in that sense, this ties into, this whole Deuteronomy 32 worldview ties into the spiritual worldview, the supernatural worldview of the Old Testament, which a lot of people try to remove, but it's inherent in the text. So that's Heiser's whole argument Mm -hmm. is that, this, the Old Testament is is very supernatural, and we shouldn't remove supernatural isms from from the text. So, and this relates to I think Ephesians six, where it says we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We yep. uh, right, but uh, spiritual powers and principalities and exactly. So it's it's so and the idea is that okay, they rebelled. Now through Christ's sacrifice, we now have power over you know as. Uh, Jesus Christ exercised demons and all these things out of people. Mm -hmm. Uh, We now have power over those spiritual authorities through Christ, through his death and his resurrection, by him descending into Hades, coming out with the, right? Coming out on top. So the point here is that by becoming a believer, you're now grafted into the spiritual war. Mm -hmm. Just by virtue of that's your job. You're, You're a spiritual warrior. So, and that is tied into Deuteronomy 32 in the sense that these sons of God, mm-hmm. right? The angels of God, right? right? That's the, the, the same meaning there, um, are essentially ruling over, but now we have power over them through Christ. Right. And okay, so um, on the side of like the NIV for sure, because they they use sons of Israel here, and um, I'm sure some other English translations as well. So people who hold the sons of Israel 
interpretation, what they will do is they'll go, okay, well, go back to Exodus 1, uh, and in verse 4, it says, it says uh, sorry, verse 5, it says, the descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all, and Joseph was already in Egypt. So the number of the household of Israel who went into Egypt was 70. Uh, and then you go back into Genesis 10 at the table of nations, and there are 70 nations. So in the Song of Moses, who wrote Genesis and Exodus according to Jewish tradition, he is lining up. Uh, he's saying, you see, like, God has such a plan for Israel that even the world nations were ordered in God's providence because of the number of the 70 people of Israel who went up. Right. So that's that side of the argument. And then the other side, you know, translating it literally and then trying to wrestle with the sons of God, definitely talking about the spiritual warfare. And then when you, you could come to this uh, also by checking out the, you know, it's really popular to look to Daniel because Daniel is a very uh, interesting book. It's not just a book of prophecy, but it also hints at spiritual warfare that was going on during the time period of the Old Testament. It's really popular for people who are trying to figure out how the spiritual world works. I don't think that we're supposed to know entirely how the spiritual world works because I think the Bible would explain it more, but it does explain it a little bit here in Daniel Chapter 10, uh, an angel comes to Daniel uh, and, and um, gives Daniel a vision and is speaking to him. And it says, do not be afraid, Daniel. This is in verse 12. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. So this spiritual being was resisted by the prince of Persia, and then Michael, the archangel, had to come and fight for him. Now, lest we think that the prince of Persia should be seen as a physical person, we jump down to verse 20 and it says this. So he said, do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. And it goes on and there's more talk like this over in Daniel 12. So what we're seeing here is Michael, the angel who, um, you know, it says, I'm pretty sure in, in um, chapter 12, it talks about how, yeah, uh, 12 verse 1. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. So we have this Michael uh, angel who is charged with protecting the nation of Israel. And we see him engaged with the prince of Persia and the prince of Egypt. So if these are of the same nature as Michael, these are angels, but they are not on God's side but they are representing nations. Uh, so really yes. interesting. So yeah. we see, we do see this whole sons of God narrative being reflected in Daniel. Right. And I think on. to even add to that, even the concept of there being 70 children of Israel, mm -hmm. of Jacob, um, that even relates in the sense to Jesus sending out the 70 disciples, right? Mm -hmm. And um, th there's just a relationship there. That, In other words, it is not to be like, oh, it has to be 70 sons of Israel or it has to be sons of God. Um, and as if there's no relationship between the two. Right. Like these things can easily be, they're not mutually exclu exclusive. Mm -hmm. They can easily come together and be married in, in a real way in the sense that the, the, the Abrahamic God's promise, God's timing. With Israel exa making it 70. 
Exactly. To so, reflect a greater reality. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So there's different ways of approaching it. At the end of the day, the spiritual, the, the, his whole argument that Heiser's pointing out is mm-hmm. that the supernatural element of the Old Testament needs to be front and center. Right. Right. Because- Which I think is a fair criticism of modern scholarship and modern Christianity and, and Bible reading is that we tend to interpret it through our own understanding and the way that we see the world. Right. Rather than the way that ancient Israel saw right. the world. That's right. Yeah. I, I think like, you know, you can, I've, I've been critical about Heiser in the past, but I think he does a good job here and establishes that. Yeah. An exceptional job in my opinion. But anyway, so that's that. Awesome. I have a, I have a question for you. Okay, okay? shoot. All right. <laughs> How, this is from Darlene, by the way. Okay. So hi, how, Darlene. How, hi. How could Moses write about his own death and beyond right. in Deuteronomy 34, 10 to 11? Right. So Deuteronomy 34 contains the account of Moses' death. And uh, it, it like verse 10, uh, 10, 11, 12 are the last verses of Deuteronomy 34. But verse 10 clearly couldn't have been written by Moses. It says, since then... So since Moses' death, since the time of Moses, since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So clearly this is like since then. So there's a time gap between Moses's death and the writing of Deuteronomy 34 verses 10 to 12. Okay, so... He didn't. My answer is, Darlene, Moses did not write that. Uh, the the tradition of, of Mosaic authorship, so Moses writing the first five books of the Bible, leaves room for later editing. We know later editing happened as the scribes of Israel and the prophets of Israel continued adding to the Old Testament canon. They would go back and they would update books. We see this in Genesis with place names being updated. You know, it used to be called this, but now the city is called this. We see it in Judges. We see it in kings. We see it all throughout the scriptures. So people going back, editors going back and kind of updating some of the text as Pl- it goes along. Place names is a good example of that. Yeah. Because, yeah, go ahead. No, it's okay. Yeah, no, okay. so place names is a good example because often what will happen is they'll be like, uh, this is called this, but now we call it this. Yeah. And it's like, okay, so it's like the original author, you know, didn't write that. Someone updated it to reflect their <laughs> current time period. And yeah. that's what's that's what's carried on. Right? Absolutely. And um, so I wanted to take you to Joshua 24, verse 26, because uh, we see an example of someone adding to the Mosaic law, someone adding to the Bible. And it's Joshua, the man who took over. He was anointed to take over leadership of Israel from Moses. So uh Joshua chapter 24, verse 26, it says this, And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. So obviously the first part of that verse is what's important here for our purposes. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. So this is being added to by the leaders and the prophets of Israel. I mean, it would have been really, really guarded. Uh, Only certain things made it into the Old Testament canon. We know there was lots of other writings that didn't make it in, but that's another story for another day. So yeah, Moses didn't write those parts. It was later editions by people like Joshua and uh, other prophets and leaders of Israel. That's right. All right. So Matt, look, I have a question from you. Sure, shoot. 
This is from Guess Who, and Guess Who, if you're listening, we got it, man. We're finally here. We're finally here at the question. Okay, so Matlock, this is from Guess Who. It says, does the Bible ever condemn slavery, or did the Bible only give guidelines for how to practice two different types of slavery? Okay, so I don't know what he means by the second half of that question, if I'm being completely honest. Yeah. Because I don't know what he means by practicing two different types of slavery. Fair, yeah. But what I will say is, is that does the Bible condemn slavery? Yes, actually. But there's yes. two ways of looking at this. One, there's spiritual slavery. And two, there's socioeconomic slavery. Okay. Both of which are not condoned. Okay, so let, let me explain this for one. Okay, so ultimately, slavery is condemned with the adoption of sonship. This is the spiritual type of slavery that I was talking about. Now, if you recall, Paul says in the New Testament that you're slaves to Christ or you're slaves to sin, okay? And in that sense, when you're slaves to Christ, you're liberated. There's a liberation point. When you're slaves to sin, you're just completely chained forever. There's nothing you can do about it. So, but what's important here to also recognize is that there's two meanings for the word slaves. Okay, so even though the same word is used, it means two different things. So in the is the Jewish context, especially at this time, especially in the Old Testament as we'll get into, slavery wasn't the same thing that we think about slaves today. It just wasn't. It's look at it more like long-term servitude or a labor contract or even just a butler. Like it's just, it's not- It was actually a way of survival. Yes, and it's not the same thing. When we think of slavery today, we think racism, right? We think of the whole uh, socioeconomic system that's built around slavery. And it's, it's fundamentally not the same. So I'm going to show you about the reasons why they're, they're, they're not the same. And I'm going to start with this, okay? This is in reference to the spiritual slavery that we're talking about. Galatians 4, verses 1 to 7. And right here, he's talking about uh, the power of the gospel. This is Paul speaking and what it means for us, okay? So Paul says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So this is implying Christ. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God set forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So notice here that the, the, the concept of son, uh, of being a slave, is not condoned. It's not like this is a good thing in a sense. But the idea of being a slave is also likened to, it's you have an it's only temporal. Now, also to Jesus Christ, okay, and us are likened to slaves under God until the appointed time of sonship. In other words, it's ultimately, slavery is ultimately condemned until the appointed time. So ultimately, yes, it is condemned. You're not a slave forever in the spiritual sense, mm-hmm. right? So because it, that's the spiritual backdrop, that factors into the socioeconomic way of looking at slavery. It's not like, oh, slavery is good for for you know for physical reality the world you live now but it's terrible in heaven it doesn't mm-hmm. work that way on earth as it is in heaven as it always is often said so the point here the way to look at it is and we'll get into that is the way slavery is used in the old testament is just not the same way we use it today yeah and do you want to chime in for that too i know i, I got some points yeah here. keep going okay, keep going, keep going okay. with the points and then then i'll slide in okay so god <laughs> makes it very clear that he 
basically doesn't want them to create an economic structure around slavery. Mm -hmm. He says, for one, he's like, look, because you were slaves out of Egypt, right? I don't want you having slaves permanently. Yep. Right? He goes, look, at this, and he gives, and he gives them, and here's how you know it's not even close to being the same as the way we see it today. One, uh, slaves were treated as fully human and as heirs in the promise. So they were to be circumcised. Mm -hmm. They were to observe Sabbath. Okay. And that means not work once, once a week. Okay. Yeah, this is rest. completely contrasting everything else that you see. The reason why that's so important is because those are two, the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, meaning that you're signs of the children of God. You are grafted in to be children of God. That was, that is nothing to do with you know, oh, you know, you, you're black, therefore you're of lower status. You're not a human anymore. No, it's like you're fully human in this sense. Like you're grafted into the promise and the heir to the adoption of sonship. So that is one thing completely. It also was not racial it, at it, all. Not racial in at the all. Old it, it just had nothing to do with no. race. You actually had, you sold yourself into slavery. That's right. Yeah. Sorry. I'll, no, no, that's you good. You keep going. No, that was good. I will, so, I will round it out after number with two, some other insights. If you were to abuse your slave, okay, or you mm -hmm. just called a servant. If you were to abuse, abuse your servant, they were to be set free, mm -hmm. completely free. That is, so when you look at the modern context, okay, and also beside, before I get there, after seven years, you're supposed to set them free, mm -hmm. okay? And they so, don't, but they don't have to go free if they don't want to. No, they don't have to go free if they don't want to. They can stay, which says something, right? So, but if you look at the modern context, okay, which is, you know, we're with this in the U.S. history, basically, with the yeah. slaves and everything like that. There was a great antebellum uh, slavery debate that happened between the North and the South, and essentially everyone brought their Bibles, and they're like, "Look, slavery is in the Bible, therefore we can do it." That's what the South is saying. And the North's like, no, you're not, you're missing kind of the spirit behind what's happening. It's not condoning slavery. Does it, it doesn't promote slavery at all, right? There's no slave or free man, often quoting Galatians. So the point here is that uh, what happened was there was a, a, a miscommunication in biblical interpretation, okay, in which I say yeah. the North was clearly right. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and it, and it should not, it, literally should never have happened. I know the Bible was used, but there's actually a capital punishment listed twice in the Bible, once in the new once in the Old Testament and once in the New Testament for slave traders. Right. So and there we go. And so to add to this, so what they did was in the South, they took the law and applied one element of the law. And then all those ele other elements they listed about beating your slaves, you have to let them free. After seven years, you have to let them free, right? Mm -hmm. All those errors were not applied. Completely not applied. They just took one error. Oh, look, it says slavery. Therefore, we can yeah. do it. Yeah. And it's like you kind of miss the whole point of what's happening here. First of all, the word slave doesn't mean what you think it means. Yeah. Right? And so, right? And so it's it's just a big misunderstanding. Are we trying to understand what are we trying to understand God's morality through the Bible, or are we just trying to justify our own morality? There's a huge difference That's between right. those two things. And this to seal the deal sure. on this. Unless you want to say something first before. Nope, that's okay. Okay. So Jeremiah 34 mm -hmm. verses 8 to 20. Now you could read this or I could read this. I'm currently holding two different passages open. I, I will read, read this. So okay. you do it. <laughs> okay. So basically what happens is there's the slavery of the world and the slavery that's happening in Israel. And when Israel stops treating servants as servants and starts treating them like the slaves of the world... God completely lambastes them. And I'm going to read you this line. Now, it's Jeremiah 34, 8 to 20, but I'm going to start at verse 13. Okay, so if you have an issue with this, you can get greater context by reading the whole thing. But here it is. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, 
I myself made a covenant with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, saying, At the end of seven years, each of you must set uh, free the fellow Hebrew who has been sold to you and has served you for six years. You must set them free from your service. But your fathers did not listen to me or incline their ears to me. You recently repented and did what was right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty, each to his neighbor. And you made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. But then you turned around and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female slaves, whom you had set free according to their desire. And you brought them into subjection to be your slaves. Okay, so they're acting like the world. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty. Everyone to his brother and everyone and everyone to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty to the sword, to pestilence and to famine, declares the Lord. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And then the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of my of the covenant that they made before me will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between in parts. Remember that Abrahamic covenant. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who pass between the parts of the calf. And I will give them into the, uh, the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. So long story short, and I, was, I know that was a long thing to, look, to read, but long story short, it's like you completely didn't listen to this law at all. And now I'm going <laughs> to devastate you for mm -hmm. doing this. Um so that kind of gives you to the mindset that it's the law of liberty. It's not the law of slavery. And that was kind of the point behind this. And they completely abused it. So Israel is essentially condemned for not following the actual law of what it means to have servants. So they treated them like slaves. Anyways, that would be my... Yeah. yeah. Okay, so I want to jump in with answering it in a slightly different way. Sure. Not disagree with anything that you said, but just right. answering it in a slightly yeah, yeah. different way because we thought about these differently. So guess who? Yes, the Bible condemns slavery in the way that we think of slavery today. So in... Um, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, first, I'm going to read to you a principle that God says to the Israelites. It's verse 15. So Deuteronomy 23, 15. If a slave has taken refuge with you, do not hand them over to their master. Let them live among you wherever they like and in whatever town they choose. Do not oppress them. All right. So then Deuteronomy chapter 24 actually prescribes capital punishment for those who would kidnap and sell slaves. It says this, if someone is caught kidnapping a fellow Israelite and treating or selling them as a slave, the kidnapper must die. You must purge the evil from among you. Uh, then when we jump into the New Testament, the idea of slave trading as a great evil is carried through in 1 Timothy chapter 1. So um, Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers. And it goes on and it lists behaviors of those ungodly uh, and unholy lawbreakers and rebels and slave traders 
is in that list. Slave traders is in that list. So yes, the Bible does condemn slavery, especially of the kind that we associate with it today, where people are made slaves and then traded as chattel. Now, what is also true about this is that in the ancient world, as Matlock has already alluded to back in the time of Israel, ancient Israel, uh, in the land of Canaan, slavery was not like the slavery that we are used to. Slavery was a part of uh, the economic structure in the sense of they didn't have a government system of welfare. So there wasn't an overarching, you know, at first, especially, there wasn't even a king uh, that would be able to institute some sort of welfare. You were completely left up to the the generosity of other families and other people. There was no social security net. So what happens then when you hit upon hard times and you have no money, a famine wipes out your animals or a sickness wipes out your animals and your family begins to starve? Well, what you can do is you can kind of, you can sell yourself to a fellow Israelite where you will work for them for your food and you become a servant at that point. So it says slave, it can easily be translated servant. Uh, and then there was legislation around that. So around how you could treat your servant and how you could not treat your servant. And as we've already mentioned, every seven years, they were supposed to be released back unless they wanted to commit themselves to a lifetime of service to that to the other family, which could also be done. And this makes a lot of sense of the rules where I know a lot of people freak out in Leviticus and Deuteronomy where it talks about a man selling his daughter. There's legislation around how that daughter can be treated by the family. And what we we generally think, oh my gosh, a father selling his daughter, that's so evil. Look, women were seen as property. But in that situation, what that father would be doing would be trying to save his daughter and the rest of his family from starvation. So God is legislating a system that already existed uh, while condemning a very abhorrent type of slavery uh, that would involve kidnapping and slave trading. That was absolutely a no-go. Uh, and in fact, in Judges, we see Israel um, making covenants with the Canaanites. And these covenants had the Canaanites working for Israel, not as slaves, but kind of akin to that. Like they're working for it. They're, they're taxed labor, so forced labor. And God actually calls them out on that. They're not allowed to do that. And we're going to get into that on the next program. But yes, so I would say, yes, the Bible does directly outlaw slavery of the kind that we are familiar with, uh, but it does not outlaw the kind outlaw the kind of slavery that we are no longer familiar with, with right. which had nothing to do with racism, as far as we can tell, uh, and was a means of social security. Right. The irony behind this whole statement is that slavery, um, if you look at like just the history, let's say Aristotle, who defended slavery, right. okay? So you look at the, at the secular history, and it's not against slavery. It's only because of the New Testament and Christianity oh. that we have this whole discussion about why it should not be permitted. And so the irony behind this whole thing is that while we're trying to say, gotcha Bible, the whole basis of slavery is a, of, of not having slaves is a Christian concept. So it's like there's no slave or free man, as I said before in Galatians. So it's just an ironic thing to try to condemn the Bible. If I don't know if that's yeah. what, guess who's doing, but 
Uh, so some people try to say, gotcha, Bible, you have slaves. But it's, it's like it just misses the point. Completely. So I just thought of something else. Yeah. So also keep in mind uh, Philemon, the book of Philemon, yes. where Paul – so um, Philemon was a slave who ran away from his master, Onesimus, in the New Testament, and they were both Christians. And so Paul writes this letter to Onesimus basically saying, receive Philemon back and don't even be upset with him. But beyond that – Beyond that, uh, verse 15 of Philemon says this, perhaps the reason he was separated you from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Yeah. So that speaks to the Christian world then. There's this equalization. So even in the very flawed Roman world where there were slaves and there were masters uh, in a pretty brutal way, we see here uh, Paul advocating for the treatment of Philemon as a brother, not as a chattel slave. Right. Amazing. Yeah. There we go. Overall, just overall, overall not condoning slavery. So yeah, the Bible absolutely can be used to justify our bad behavior, but that is not how it is supposed to be used. We are supposed to go to the Bible to discern God's morality, not to justify our own. That's it never right. ends well when we try to justify our right. own. Well, really it didn't because because yeah. in the justification process in the antebellum slavery debate when they couldn't agree yeah. to each other, it, it was the catalyst that led to one of the bloodiest wars in history. So it's kind of like, yes, it really doesn't go well when we try to justify doesn't our own morality. Go well. Right. Okay, I got a question for you. Perfect. Okay. So this is uh, pertaining to Deuteronomy and Joshua, and it's from okay. Linda. Why hasn't God intervened in the Ukraine war? In the Old Testament, he, he intervened in wars all the time. Why not anymore? All right, all right, Linda. Okay, so there's a couple things here. First, why hasn't God intervened in the war on Ukraine? We're assuming that he hasn't. We're assuming, you're assuming that he hasn't intervened in the war in Ukraine. How would you know if he did? The only reason that we know, the second part of your question, in the Old Testament, he intervened in wars all the time. The only way we know of him intervening in those wars is because prophets of God wrote it down and interpret it for us and contained it in the canon. So there's no, I, like, what would it look like if God was intervening in a war? And how would we know, right? So we often think that there has to be a, a huge miraculous event like in Joshua where the sun stands still. But keep in mind, that happened once in all of the history that the Old Testament covers. For most of the time, especially in the time period of the conquest where there's many wars going on that God is involved in, it just says that the Israelites won. So there's not some grand display of the power of God that that is so obvious that they wrote it down like the sun standing still, just that God was with them and gave them favor. So why has God not allowed the Ukrainians to win or the Russians to win? Why has God not? I don't know. I'm not God. I don't know his purposes for this, but I'm not comfortable with saying that he hasn't intervened in the war just because it hasn't gone the way that I would have liked it to have gone. So I would say that that's one answer. What do you think? Yeah. Well, I think you've already just nailed it in the head. Like there's just no reason why we say that he isn't working. Now, even in the Bible, we can see hints of this where when Israel's finally judged for their evil deeds and stuff, yeah. uh, other nations come against Israel 
And these other nations don't know that they're coming against Israel to judge Israel. Right. But the prophets know. The God's, prophets... God's like, he's removing his protection and using their their bad intentions to actually accomplish his will. Exactly. So yeah. it's like you have a bunch of evil killing evil. And so the, and then they ask the prophets of God, look, you're going to be killed for your evil. Mm-hmm. So unless you repent to change your ways, he's going to let this happen. Yeah. So, but, so the other four nations have no clue that they're working on God's behalf. And okay, so this is where I, I want to insert a word of caution because I often hear a lot of Christians saying, oh, this is clearly God judging this nation or this is clearly like somewhere where God needs to step in and allow this nation to, to prosper. And it's just, we just don't know enough information to say those kinds of things unless God has given you a vision as a prophet of God, very clearly spoken to you and you're willing to go out on the limb and say like, here here is what the Lord said and then allow yourself to be judged by by the outcome of your prophecies we have to be careful about how yeah. we how we parse this out and how we how we put words in the mouth of God yes. it's never a good idea to yeah, do that i've heard from some people that it's it rushes judging the west yeah and in another sense it's like okay because like, you know maybe right but once again it's it's <laughs> yeah maybe and there are things, bad things in the West. Like we talk about, we're going to get into this topic about genocide. We talk about, okay, abortions. Sure. There are terrible things happening, like millions sure. and uh, tens of millions of abortions per year. And they're like, oh, God's judging the West that. It's like, well, did God tell you that's why he's judging the West? Exactly. And what, There's what's There's a happening- difference between saying we can absolutely say abortion is wrong and worthy of God's judgment without saying this is how God is judging exactly. us. Exactly. Like we don't need to appeal to that in order to deal with our own crud. Our culture is full of judgeable offenses and crud. And we need to deal with that and work on that. Uh, like I don't, I don't hypothetically have a problem with God raising up a prophet and giving them, you know, thus says the Lord, this this judgment is coming. I am right. right now, I am a continuationist. I believe that God could do that. But I think that for the most part, God is not doing that. We don't see that happening. Uh, and I, I, my vision is not all, all seeing. So right. I could be missing something here. But we need, we just, as Christians, we need to be careful putting words in the mouth of God and, and, we can we can come against our own cultural sin without appealing to something like Russia being a judging force of God, right? Because like, they may be, but yeah, I don't yeah, know that. And, it's, but, and suppose okay, and suppose that you're wrong. Suppose that, that war happens, and then let's say we obliterate Russia. Let's say hypothetically, let's say that happens. Okay? Sure, I don't really want to get into it. But the point here is what I'm trying to say is, all of a sudden you've been telling everyone God is judging Russia, mm-hmm. God's or, judging the West for yeah. Russia. And then we just win. Then what does that say about God's judgment? Mm-hmm. So it's like, and then then that reflects poorly on your Christian witness to people who are unbelievers. Mm-hmm. So then it's it's really just not about taking things that are happening. Like, look, this looks like a Bible event, and then try to parallel that. Yeah, it's really about if you know what God's doing, if you're discerning God's heart, and you're a pro- like you're saying you're, you have a prophecy of this come from you from God. That is one thing, but if you don't know, let's not make grandiose 
ideas about something, right? Also, I think it's very, I think it can be really distracting for us. We have a very clear mission as Christians when we look at the Great Commission, when we look at the teachings of the apostles afterwards, we are to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to love the world as Christ loved us. That is our mission. And I think we can get ourselves really distracted and really wound up when we only focus on things like God's overarching plan for humanity and for world politics and for wars. Do I believe that God has an overarching plan? Absolutely, yes. I think you can make that biblical case, but without a very clear prophet of God receiving receiving a word from God, I just struggle to see how we can be confident that that right. is what God's doing. And I think that a lot of times it distracts us from our mission. And to be very clear on this too, like a lot of Orthodox the Ukrainian Orthodox were extreme in Russian Orthodox were extremely confused because when it happened, the Russian Orthodox Church sanctions this war and comes against all the Orthodox churches within Ukraine. And then the Orthodox people are like, why is Orthodox fighting Orthodox? Right. And this just sent confusion. Right. So so it's not as simple as us from the West looking at it and this once again, we have an overarching idea of what's happening. But when you get to the details and and then all of a sudden it's like, well, how could God use the church to kill the church? Right, and then that confuses people. So it's really important not to just make or just assume grandiose things that God is doing, or what God is not doing here. We just have to be patient, yeah, and just see what God is, see how God's hand moves. Because at the end, it's usually you know hindsight's twenty twenty. Well, it's it's very much like that with God. When you see at the end of this whole thing, we're going to be able to see God's hand moving much more clearly. And that's what happened even at the end of World War II, when people didn't know that people were being annihilated mm -hmm. in World War II. And a lot of people, it was just like unaware that all of a sudden, you know, Nuremberg comes out, we see all the footage, everyone's like, oh my goodness. Like it was way worse than we anticipated. Mm -hmm. uh, we knew it was bad, nothing bad was happening. We didn't know it was as bad as we thought it, uh, mm -hmm. as, as it was. So my point in saying that is that like, just be cautious not to put words in the mouth of God because that's not our job. Agreed. That's it. That's it. All right. Okay. So we're going to move on now to the sure. big question. The big question was a condensed, is a condensed version of a viewer question. So the big question again, why did God command genocide if he is all merciful? But I wanted to read the viewer question that we distilled that big question from. Yeah. Okay, Malik. So I'm going to ask you. Sure. Here's the viewer question from Donna. She says this, the Bible is full of violence, genocide, prejudice, and injustice often commanded by God. And it's been used by Christians to justify more violence and oppression. As Christians, how do we show our neighbor that is not what God in the Bible are all about? Okay. So for one sense, there's two things there. I do, the Bible is just not full of genocide. The word, I, we'll get into that in a second. But it is full of violence and it is full of prejudice and there is injustice. But obviously, as we talked about, God's not condoning. Though, God's not like, oh. She says that those things are commanded by God, though. That the violence, genocide, prejudice, and injustice are oh. often commanded okay. by God. Well, no. Okay. Okay. <laughs> no. Okay. So we're going to get into this because, first of all, this, what, this relates to the big question. These types of questions we ask ourselves. Let's get a little bit more fundamental back here. Okay. When we think about this, what is the reason why we, th we look at this? So why does God command a, a group of people to take down the Canaanites, right? Well, in one sense, we're comfortable with the idea of God judging evil. Take yeah. Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? Yeah. Killing their children, 
you know, doing terrible things, tons of sexual morality. And no one ever looks at Sodom and Gomorrah because it looks like a natural disaster. It'd be like, how could God judge evil through mm -hmm. natural disaster? So then we look at God using people to judge people. And that's where the thing, this question really comes down to. Why would God use people to judge people? And um, to me, that's like the real sticking point in this, in this whole thing. Because at the end of the day, God is, if God uses violence hypothetically like a natural disaster, no one's upset with God for judging evil, right? And that to me, I think when everyone looks at that, like what is evil and what is good, yeah. comes down to those questions. Because if you're like, okay, these people are all killing their children, well, everyone's fine with World War II because we went in there and defeated Nazis who were burning children and families alive, right? And, mm -hmm. and with chemicals and stuff, and it's terrible. So we're okay with that type of just war. So God's doing another just war. So that's in a sense, in terms of why would God command violence? It's like, well, he's, it's a just war against evil that's being committed by a certain people group, right? Mm -hmm. So God doesn't command genocide. He doesn't command prejudice. And he doesn't command injustice, like, like just none of those things. I'm I just, think I think that I, you could make a case that God did command violence and he did command prejudice, but it was violence against evil and prejudice against idol worship. Okay, sure. Yes, you can say that, right? Yes, I mean, they were supposed to be very prejudiced against idol worship. Like don't, right. don't intermarry with people who are involved in idol worship. So I would say that that is a prejudging. <laughs> Right. Because if they're involved in idol worship, don't get involved. So I would say, yes, that is prejudice commanded by God. But I don't think there's this broad scale prejudice just based on nothing. And definitely violence was commanded by God. I, I don't think you can say that the conquest wasn't violence. Right. It definitely was violence. But why? What was it violent against? It was being violent against evil. It was bringing in that judgment. Well, that's but right. I reject, I, I would want Donna to... And, and I'm totally open to this, Donna, of you kind of fleshing out this question because I personally reject the concept that God commanded genocide and that God commanded injustice. I would say that um, I, I do not believe that the conquest of Canaan was genocide. I mean, when you go into, maybe we could get into this yes. because this is our big question. Why did God command genocide if he is all merciful? I reject that he commanded genocide. I do not well, believe that to be the case. I'm not a person to be like, this is the definition. But seriously, in this case, the definition of genocide isn't the same <laughs> thing of what's happening here at all. So genocide is the systematic extinguishing of an ethnic people group. Mm -hmm. Like not even taking them as slaves, which, you know, as we just talked about, extinguishing these people completely off the planet. Yeah. And so here's why, here's why it's not that. Uh, and there's a few reasons for it. First, when you, when you look at God's command to go in and to destroy these people groups, there is a command to destroy them. But what happens first is God goes in supernaturally and makes the land unattractive to them. He actually says, I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you. Also the two Amorite kings, you did not do it with your own sword and bow. So there's, there was this idea that because the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and all of these different people who were living in this land, they their evil was so bad that God was bringing judgment on them. He actually supernaturally made the land unattractive and tried to drive them out of the land 
first. And Israel was absolutely never commanded to chase anyone and slaughter them to make sure those races or those people groups didn't exist on the face of the planet anymore. The people who stood and fought, those were the people that God delivered into Israel's hands and they did kill them wholesale. So I wanted to read this Joshua chapter 24. This is a summation of what's, what has actually physically happened in the land. Joshua is getting old. He's about to die. Uh, and, and he says, so he renews the covenant between the people and God at Shechem. And this is his summation, uh, of the conquest in verse 11. It says this, then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you as did also the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands. So those people who fought and resisted, I helped you to defeat. Verse 12, I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you. Also the two Amorite kings, you did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. So there was this supplanting of the cultures that were there in Canaan with the Israelite culture. But first of all, it wasn't based on their their race. It was it was get them out. Don't completely, if they run away, let them run away, but drive them out of the land. And when we read Deuteronomy, that is consistently the language that is used. Drive them out of the land. So I reject the concept that this should be viewed as genocide. It just wasn't. And the purpose was for cleansing the land. Also keep in mind that God allowed the Israelites to live in very difficult suffering and conditions in Egypt for 400 years because he did not want to judge the Canaanites, Hivites, Perizzites, not all of those. Not their full measure. He literally says to Abraham back in Genesis, your descendants will stay in Egypt for 400 years until the iniquity of those peoples has reached its full Amount. God knew where it was going, but the people who were living there at that time, they, the, it, like before the flood, I think you can use that analogy pretty well, where it got to the point where the intentions of their hearts were continually evil all the time, and then God yes. brought judgment. So God didn't want to bring judgment on those generations of people who were not continuously evil. He waited until the very last second, and then he brought judgment. And, and, and to be clear on that, it's idol worship that brings you to that point. Yes. So it's like a continuously worshiping demons and stuff like that that brings you there and that's why the supernatural worldview is so <clears throat> important when you read this yeah but um even more so like when you when you're looking at this too like you have to ask yourself like, why do these questions come up? why the common question if god why would god command genocide right it's like well yeah okay just the look at the heart of this question is typically present presented by atheists because they're trying to teach you not to worship god yeah he's not worthy he's a hypocrite right okay, okay let's 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 deal with this a little bit okay Let's play this out. Okay, so God doesn't exist. So humans are going into these cultures. God doesn't exist. They make this is their normative ideal is what they're doing, and they're they're killing everything. Okay, so they think it's genocide. So humans are committing genocide because God doesn't exist. So all this does is make it put the onus on humans. 
that they're the ones committing all these evils. Okay, so that's number one. So if God doesn't exist because, you know, because how could an evil God actually be real? Uh, then it's just humans. Humans are just clearly evil doing these things. And then you have to ask yourself, okay, so what's the basis for good and evil? Well, continuously in every, this, it's moral, atheistic moral philosophy, morality is either cultural or it's relative. So moral relativism or moral right, culturalism. And in that case, so you have a moral cult, the morality of the Jews, because you know God doesn't exist and God's just their ideal, yeah. right? Is coming in there to kill people who burn people alive, okay? They don't like that. They don't like the fact that these people burn burn children and for power and fortune, all right? To get cosmic power. Okay, so uh, Israel goes in there and they slaughter them. Okay, so once again, you have here that what is why is Israel wrong for doing what they're doing? Well, there's no basis for it's just one culture versus another culture. There's no moral basis to say that that they did something wrong. There's no moral basis to say that the Canaanites were doing something wrong. It's just one culture saying, I don't like what you're doing, so I'm going to kill you. Right. And other culture being like, well, I don't want to leave because I, I like what I'm doing. And then there's a war that happens. Mm -hmm. And then just so happens that Israelites win. Right. So it's kind of like in an atheistic system, there is no basis to say that this is even wrong. So the whole essence of the question, it's kind of why I laughed at first, because the whole essence of the question is to make you be an atheist and then at the same time, it doesn't even, there's no basis to say that this is even wrong. So right. it's, it's a completely but contradictory it, statement in and of itself. Yeah. Just to say, so what is the basis of morality? Well, the Christian concept is that God is the essence of what's good. Right. So you're, you're saying, oh, okay, genocide is wrong or killing just war or war is wrong. And then you're doing that based on what standard? Well, the standard of goodness that we've gotten from a Christian ethos. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it just to me, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of morality as a whole. Yeah. Anyway, so that's that's kind of where I'm at. Where it's and you know, I was thinking about that too, and I I, I kind of mentioned this to you earlier today. Right. I'm sure it's not a new concept, but just as I was pondering it, thinking about it, you know, a huge a huge issue that people, even atheists, lob against God all the time is the problem of evil. So. If God is so loving and so powerful, then how could there be so much evil and suffering in the world? So they hate God because, or, or they don't believe in God because there's so much evil and suffering. But then when God steps in to judge the evil and judge the suffering, they hate God for it because That's he right. doesn't, he doesn't do it the way that they would do it. So there's this intense arrogance that like, I am obviously I would have done it better. Obviously, I can see all the outcomes. So there's this irony there. Yes. We hate we hate this concept that there's evil and suffering. And then when God comes in to judge the evil and suffering, we hate God because of how he judges the evil and suffering. It's just he's set up to lose here. Right. But there is another kind of element. So I think that's one way, Donna, that um, we show our neighbor that that's not what God and the Bible are all about. We talk about this issue of judgment um, and, and how God is just and he comes in and he deals with sin. Um, but the other element of this question that you brought up, but we never really talked about it, was no one's upset when God uses natural elements of the world to judge yes. places. I mean, some people are upset, but less people are upset. Yes over like the Sodom and Gomorrah incident because God used natural means. He himself is responsible for the destruction right. of these cities. But in the conquest of Canaan, it is noticeably different because he uses other human beings to bring about his judgment. Therefore, 
exposing them and, to like they're killing, they're doing these things. And I, let me add to this. Sure. I wrote about this at some length. It's more like, I don't know, 10, 15 minute article called Divine Genocide and Moral Necessity. It's on the website. Mm -hmm. And essentially, the, the difficulty is, okay, so God, it's not God's fault. Here's what happened. God told Israel, you're going to judge these people, basically. Yep. God does the same thing to Israel. Well, you also know it's not genocide. 500 years later or so, right. when he sends it's other... It's not about ethnicity, it's not in about other ethnicity, words, right? because he allows the exact same judgment to happen to Israel. Exactly. And he had already told them, if you follow the... Pre it's all over. I mean, look at Leviticus 19, look at Leviticus 20, look at all over De Deuteronomy, all over Joshua, all over Judges. God routinely says, if you fall into the same practices... Of the Canaanites and the people groups in this area, you will be judged the same way. Right. And so what you hear you have happen is 500 years later, Israel starts doing the same things. Then God uses other people to judge Israel. Yeah. But here's the difference between the two. Because God's still using people to judge people right. in both accounts. Right. The difference is God just lets you know that he's going to do it in the case of Joshua. He's, you're on the in. In other words, the people who are not of God's people had no clue that they were it judging was God Israel. was just using their own evil. Exactly. Their own evil intentions. Whereas in this case, God lets them know, look. Commands like, it. Yeah. He commands it because it's, it's like you're going to do this, right? So the, the, the difference is really a, a matter of the fact that Israel is now aware that they're, that they're God's judgment tool. It's a matter of awareness. So it's, it's really not. And as brutal as it is. Yeah. What better way to emphasize the seriousness of evil and of idol worship to the Israelites? He's told them over and over and over, this type of judgment will happen to you if you do these same things. And then he has them go in and enact the judgment. Right. So they're seeing what could what what happens to those who fall into right egregious evil right and you and to keep in mind here when we talk about idol worship it's not like today when we think of oh all religions are equal today pluralism all these things right these people were like <clears throat> again sacrificing children right pedophilia was just rampant there mm -hmm. okay so it's like uh, sexual morality sexual uh, cult prostitution all these different things were just things that are just like repugnant um were just norm normal okay and normative even so the problem is, is that we're not looking at it in the same way where it's like, oh, they have some sort of structure that's similar to ours. You know, we can trade with them and, you know, we can do different things. It's just not at all the same way of the religions that we look at it today. But there is, in a sense, a demonic and spiritual element that's always persisted, even today. Yeah. That's, that's always there. And that's, that's what you have to keep in mind here. We can't forget that there's a spiritual world to this and people are actually being confused and pushed down this path of idolatry yeah. that's making them so evil yeah right so it's like idolatry isn't just like oh hey you got your religion i got my religion it's like no it's going to make you into a terrible evil person maybe not mm. you but your kids maybe maybe them but definitely your grandkids kind of thing mm. it's like it's just you're gonna get worse and worse and worse because you can't foresee what it's like uh you know what i mean you can't see the future so anyways long yeah. story short is that god's clearly judging evil yep and it's like, and we here agree to that. And the irony behind this statement, the whole irony, I remember, was that this, this statement was really big about like five years ago, or I think it was more than that, during the Beijing Olympics. And the irony behind this whole thing was that 
China was actually committing genocide at the time, documented, committing genocide, gathering people together and annihilating an ethnic group, yeah. okay? And there's still the, con active concentration camps in China to this day. Exactly. And then we all tune in to watch the Olympics and support Chinese. Because the athletes have been working so hard, Matlock. Why, why? Oh, but, they, they're going to waste years of their life of... of People are dying. I know. And, and we're like, it's fine because the athletes are working really hard and I would like to watch the Winter Olympics. So evil. So Guys, we, that is evil. I know. So then we watched, we watched the Olympics. And we I did not China. watch the Olympics. No, I know we didn't. <laughs> but I'm saying in general, people watch the Olympics and support China. I know. And even knowing that there's genocide happening, knowing that know. when you watch this, China's being paid for mm. you to watch this. And... But we're angry but, at God for judging people. We're angry evil. at God for judging people for burning their children. I like, know. what? So, what? I know. Yeah. So to kind yeah. of like bring it back down then to Donna, she talks about, you know, it's been used by Christians to justify more violence and oppression. Right. Yes, it has been historically. And this is something that Christians have to wrestle with this idea of God as just and God bringing judgment as well as having mercy and as well as typifying. He defines love, right? Real love. So we have to wrestle with these ideas and be very sober minded about it. But also there's a theme that has woven its way through this show, which has been this concept of when you become a Christian, when you dedicate your life to God and say, I know that I am not right. I know that you are right, God. I am now yours. I follow you through Jesus Christ. We submit our will to God. And rather than coming to the Bible to justify our existing morality, we go to the Bible and we try to find God's morality and apply that to ourselves because we have come underneath the authority of Jesus Christ and back into a relationship with God. So there will inevitably be people who try to justify their behavior, even people who are Christians who try to justify their behavior, but that doesn't make it right. And God will judge us for that. He absolutely will. Right. And in terms of the, the very end, because I know we never really addressed the all merciful part fully. Sure. Um, I think that when we're looking at this, judgment, when we think of mercy, it doesn't mean do whatever you want and it does nothing matters. Mercy is contingent upon there being an actual judgment. Mm -hmm. So in other words, I repent and I'll stop, then God shows mercy. Mm -hmm. um, but if there's no repentance and you're gonna to continue to evil, if you're gonna to continue to burn people alive. Like You know what's an amazing yes. you know what's an amazing display of God's mercy is go into Kings and Chronicles and uh, take a look at Ahab. Yes. The prophet Elijah tells Ahab that he's coming under judgment because of God. And Ahab, one time, one time, even though the Bible calls him the most evil king that there ever was of Israel, not of Judah, of Israel. One time he sincerely repents. And even though God knows he's gonna to continue to be evil because he sincerely repented, God relents and holds back the judgment. Yeah. Even the evilest king of Northern Israel, if he repented, that God had made a way, he showed mercy in that. And add to that. So again, God is merciful, but course. it depends on our response to him. Exactly, and also too, consider Jonah. Like the whole story of Jonah is that he goes to Assyria, right, preaches, you know, you're gonna be overthrown unless you repent. They repent, and who were the Assyrians? Well, just as despicable. They're peeling people's skin off and plastering it on their towers. 
so that you could walk, if you became a slave to Assyria, you could walk in and see your children's skins on a tower. Like, you think about that. Yeah. Okay, that's the kind of stuff they were doing. It's just horrifying stuff, right? And um, they repent in the book of Jonah. And what does God do? He doesn't destroy them. He relents. So once again, repentance is the catalyst of mercy. But you have to repent. You have to acknowledge you've done something wrong. Mm-hmm. If you don't acknowledge, it's like, well, at some point, if you, you can't just allow evil to continue because then he would lack justice. And justice and mercy balance each other out. Yeah. Right. So he needs to be just. He needs to be merciful. Those two. You can't just have raw justice that gets into legalism. You can't just have raw all mercy because then you're not a judge at all and evil just run rampant. So you need the justice and mercy for it all to make sense. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's, I just want to add to that. Yeah. No, I, I think... <laughs> I mean, we're 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 going over time, yeah. which is not it's not that big of a deal. I know it's it's, <laughs> it's nice to talk and it's nice to discuss, but we're going to we're in jo- the remainder of Joshua and Judges on next weekend's program. So we're going to be able to continue the conversations about sure. God's justice and about this whole issue of the conquest from a little bit of a different angle. I'm excited for the Judges. I mean, it's a hot take, but it's one of my favorite books of the Bible. Most people don't like it. I do. I like it. We're jumping in. It's going to be great. So if you have any more comments or questions, please pop them down in the comments below and we will see you next week. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.